In our text today, Jesus brings his sermon to a halt. And as he brings his sermon to a halt, this particular text, Matthews 5, 6, and 7, is seen as one of the lengthier texts within the confines of Jesus' ministry. You would see Jesus have long dialogues with several individuals. You, you would see Jesus have dialogue and uh, after dialogue with different groups and different individuals. But this is one of those, those texts where you see Jesus take the opportunity to just sit and to preach and to teach unto his disciples. It marks our text, that is, marks the ending of this particular message, but it really should be the transitional point in marking the true beginning of the call to discipleship. This particular text would, would really stamp some authority of Jesus. You, you would recognize that at the end of this particular chapter, they would conclude that, that, that Jesus was different because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes and not as the religious leaders of the day. I want to say to us that the reason why Jesus was able to teach as one who had authority was because he had all authority. So as Jesus takes the opportunity to, to build a sure foundation, I'm, I'm using this with a pun intended, as Jesus takes the occasion to build a sure foundation on which his, his disciples would therefore build or launch upon, he uses some language here that may be offensive to us, but it was equally as offensive to his audience of the day. And as he brings his dialogue somewhat to a conclusion. He uses the analogy or the metaphor of one who is wise versus one who is a fool. Mama didn't raise no fool. Look to the person next to you. And if you could picture yourself Swinging your hands behind your buttocks, with your chest lifted high, look to the person next to you and say, I ain't. No fool. Now, now look to the person, because you, you, you may be like, like Tammy up here, she doesn't have somebody. Look to somebody behind you or, or turn around and tell somebody, I ain't. I, I ain't no fool. <laughs> oh, if you could get past the shock factor just for a little bit to understand that this word fool is very much a biblical term. In our, in, our, in our time today, we have used some very biblical terms and phrases and, uh, and some thoughts, and we have used it in all type of other inappropriate ways. But I want us to conclude and to know that this word doesn't mean what we have used it a lot of times to mean. This word would, would have shocked the masses, particularly those who were of a Jewish culture and background, because this word took root, and this word came to be associated with those who did not have a relationship with Jehovah God. 
And so to be associated as a fool among the Jewish context would be to associate yourself or oneself with individuals who did not have a relationship with God. Let me show you how, how this operates in the book of Job. You remember in the, in the, in the book of Job, after, after the devil comes and, uh, and he touches all of Job's different materialistic things, his cattle is gone, his oxen is gone, his sheep has run astray, and these people have run amok uh, among Job's possessions. His, 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 his kids have died due to this, this wind and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and eventually Job's wife, you remember this, Job's wife says to Job, why don't you just curse God and die? For those of us serious readers of scripture, we would, we would recognize that Job makes a statement to his wife. He, he was not condemning his wife. Let me put it to you this way. But Job makes a statement to his wife. He says, you speak, woman, as one of the foolish women do. In other words, Job is saying to his wife, you, you and I should know better because we, we serve Jehovah God. You and I should know better because we know Yahweh. You are speaking in this moment as one who does not know Yahweh. So Job isn't calling his wife what we would consider somebody a fool, but he is saying, listen, you are speaking as if you do not know God. The fool would conclude in his heart, the scripture would tell us that there is no God. So I want us to understand that from a biblical standpoint, this, this is not to be used in this moment and in this sermon, the way that we use fool very frivolously, but this is to be used in a biblical context of one who does not have a relationship, one who does not believe, one who does not adhere to the will and word of Almighty God. So when Jesus makes the association, he is speaking to a bunch of individuals who wants to be his disciples, but he is speaking in this moment in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, he is speaking to individuals who are coming from a Jewish background. They were the children of God. So he presents to them the reality that, listen, there is only but two choices that we all have. And this is actually something that we also find in Scripture. This is a pattern that we find in Scripture that presented before mankind is only two choices. You have the option of following God and receiving life. Or you have the opportunity to deny God and receive destruction. Man has always been faced with but two options. Follow God or follow something else. Man has always had two options. Eat of the fruit and die, or abstain from eating that fruit and live. Man has always had two options. Joshua would say, as for me and my house, we would serve God. But if you want to serve the, the gods of your fathers, go ahead. Man has only had, if you think about it, two options. To follow Jesus into eternity or to reject Jesus into everlasting destruction. All I'm trying to say is that Jesus presents these two options to his crowd, to his audience. You could either choose to not just hear my word, but act on it. Because there's a difference between somebody hearing the word and acting on it. Eve heard what she was not supposed to do, but she didn't act on what she knew. So Jesus says you could either hear 
and act and be accounted as one who is wise. Or he says you could hear and not act and be accounted as one who is a fool. But all of us here will conclude God didn't make no fool. So Jesus, when he comes, he comes in the reality of the fact that he knows a little bit about how to build. I would go one step further to say that he is, in fact, the master builder. After all, it was he who had built the earth and all of the cosmos. It was he that was there to form the first man, Adam, when Adam was made. He was there even when Eve was formed and fashioned from materials found within the confines of Adam himself. Jesus was there as the master builder. Jesus was there when both Adam and Eve became but one flesh. Jesus was there when the children of Israel were born into a full-fledged nation and and all that is to simply say that Jesus has the answer for the world's troubles. He knows what it takes for a man to be a good man. Jesus knows how to help a woman become the best version of herself. He knows what marriage is and how to keep that marriage going strong. He knows what it takes to build a nation because he himself said he was going to build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'm, I'm trying to help us to see that Jesus as the master builder, he knows how to build. He knows how to set a good foundation. And any good builder understands if you want to have a good structure, start with your foundation. So as the people of God, Jesus wants his followers to understand that they, they, they must know that he is the one to whom they must come to if ever there is a need. And church, there is a need. Show me one hand of one person here that doesn't have any type of need and I'll show you somebody who isn't real. Show me the hand of one person here that does not have a need and I'll show you a person who is delusional. There is need, and Jesus presents himself as the one to whom is able to fulfill all needs. If discipleship means following, then it means following the blueprint that Jesus would have left for each and every single one of us. So he has the real blueprint for our lives. He has the real blueprint for church living. He has the real blueprint for manhood. He has the real blueprint for parenting. He has the real blueprint for everything. Jesus is indeed church, the master builder. And so as he presents to his disciples, as he's presenting to us, I want for us to see this and we'll be close to a conclusion. Walking the way of the wise means not walking the way of the fool. 
Walking the way of the wise means not walking the way of the fool. Fools condemn people for their flaws, not recognizing their own deformity. I'm preaching through Matthew chapter 7 right now, by the way. Fools condemn people for their flaws, not recognizing their own deformity of life, spirit, and character. It's easy for fools to point fingers at others and not recognize that the sin that they are pointing at others is vastly smaller in comparison to the planks that, that, that plunge out of their own souls. Fools do not recognize the access they have to the one who truly blesses. Fools don't truly know the goodness of God and his love for us as his own dear children. Fools treat people opposite of the way they themselves want to be treated. Fools would readily take the path of least resistance and find comfort in being with the crowd even when that path leads to a place of destruction. Fools can't discern between truth and error, nor can they discern the difference between knowing about God and actually knowing him sincerely. So as Jesus goes through and he canvasses through Matthew chapter number 7, he, without even saying it, he is trying to help his disciples understand that there is a difference between those who are wise and those who are foolish. However, here is the contrary. I don't just want to leave us on the fool item. I want to, I want to build on the wise item because I don't want us to go away on the fool aspect of it and need for us to see that there is appropriate nature of being wise. He says, however, here's the difference. The, the wise are different. Wise, however, recognize the need to self-evaluate in order to truly be of help to others. In other words, Jesus isn't saying, don't, don't, don't tell somebody where they might be going wrong, but if you really want to help somebody, it might mean that you have to take care of some stuff in your life before you could be of benefit and help to somebody else. In other words, don't, don't come to me laden with sin, not recognizing your own sin and trying to help me deal with my sin if, 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 if you don't know what it really takes to deal, deal with your sin. No, learn to fix self a little bit first so that as you approach somebody, you approach that person with a level of humility. Don't, don't you recognize that when you realize the sin in your life, when I realize the sin in my life and I'm, I'm approaching somebody who has a sin problem, don't you realize because I am aware of my own sin, I approach that person differently? The people who approach you about your sin and, uh, uh, and your insecurities and your weaknesses in a high and mighty way are those people who don't recognize the own, their own sins in their own lives. So he says the wise person is contrary to the fool because the wise person understands the need to self-evaluate in order to be of good productive help to others. Let me even stick this here. This is not in the notes, so I hope Marilena could do this. Let me stick this in here. The wise person 
also understands and appreciates that the person who is in front of them right now, the person who is flawed in front of them right now has the ability to help them cope and deal and overcome their own insecurities and failures. The person that you're condemning, the person that you're judging, has within their confines, they, they have hands, they have the ability to help you overcome your own sinful nature and weaknesses. The wise person understands that. The wise know they have access to the blesser. And that the true blessing is not necessarily just in the material things that he gives to us. But that having a relationship with him is actually the real blessing. In other words, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what God showers upon me in as much as I recognize. This is the wise person now. The wise person recognizes it's not just about the things he throws at me because he does cause the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He does bless the good and the bad. There are things in this life that God just allows to happen on every single person, whether they follow him or not. Some of the richest people in the world don't have a relationship with God. So it's not about the material things, but the wise person understands the real true blessing is not in the things that God gives us. The real true blessing is knowing the blesser. Having a real rich relationship with him and, and so I, I, I need for us to understand and, and appreciate this church because because I know a lot of us here don't have a lot of things but what we do have is God so when I come on Sunday morning I could come spruced up I could come perked up everything in life mightn't be going well but it may find that when I got up this morning I have God that's good enough for me because I have all I need to keep it moving so the wise person understands that he or she has access to not only the blesser and the, the, the blessings, but the real blessing is knowing the blesser himself. The wise church know that God is a loving father and he actually cares for you and for me. Have you ever been in a state sometimes where you wonder if God really loves you? You're praying to God and it doesn't feel like if your prayer is being answered and in that moment you might question, a voice might come into your mind, does God really love me? The wise person understands that in that moment that's not really the voice of the Spirit. And if it was, the, the voice would conclude when the, when the question is asked, the answer would be given, yes, he really does love me. If you think that you are not enough, you're not listening to wise voice. If you think that God is not enough, you're not listening to wise counsel. Wise counsel says that we need to appreciate that God is a good God. God is good, and everybody will say all the time, and all the time God is good. But that rings true for every single situation in life. When we have and when we don't, that doesn't change God's status as being an awesome God. So the wise person knows that God is a loving father and he actually cares. Let me do this. I'm almost done. I'm, I promise you. The wise church takes the part, not necessarily of least resistance, but they take the part that leads to life knowing it is not easy but that the result in the end is worth it. 
Christianity isn't easy, but it's worth it. Life isn't easy, but if we use it wisely, it is worth it. The wise know to discern between truth and tradition, between truth and error, and those who speak on behalf of Almighty God. And could I give you this last one? The wise church listens to God's word and they act on it. The wise person, upon listening to God's word, they have to listen to it to begin with because you could not listen to it and it starts from there. But the wise person is one who listens to God's word and they step in tow as a result of it. In other words, he says, listen, you want to be wise, don't just listen and don't act, but if you want to be truly wise or walk as one of those who are wise, if you want to build a sure structure, then start on this sure foundation of, of learning to listen and act upon the teachings of God, the teachings of Jesus Christ, and the teachings of the Holy Spirit. I'll conclude by saying this. There was one time a, a man who had the opportunity to make a decision of whether or not he was going to grasp into eternity or whether or not he was going to live for a hundred years. And so one day the devil comes to the man and he says, listen, I, I want to sweeten the pot for you. And the devil tells him, you already have a hundred years, that's sure. But here's how I'll sweeten the pot for you. I'm, I'll give you the best house that man could ever build. I'll give you the best car that a man could ever drive. You will have more money than you could ever desire of your heart will be yours. All you need to do is just have faith and trust in me. The man looks at the devil and he looks at his bank account. He looks at the devil and he looks at his bank account. You, you guys, you, you know we do this sometimes, right? When... when when the opportunity presents itself and it seems a little bit too good to be true, we just have to just give us a little, let, let me be real, let me be human here for a little bit. I have to think about it for five seconds. All right, let me come with a response. And so the man finally says, you know what, devil? That sounds good. I would love to live this life in good health for 100 years. I would love to dwell in the best place that man could build with their hands. I would love to drive the best car that man could engineer. That would be awesome. He said to be, you know, to be even more, the, the, the truth is, I would just love to, to go anywhere and buy anything and not worry about how low my bank account is going to get. He said, but here's the problem. When I, when I look at what God has in store for me, and what you are offering me, 
there is no real comparison. Because eventually, the house will crumble. Eventually, cars break down. I wish I had a witness. Eventually, even having all the money in your bank account doesn't necessarily bring true happiness. He said, and what you're offering me is crumbs in comparison to the fact that my father, who is in heaven, he owns the cake factory. And so, in other words, if you could picture it with me one more time, the man in the face of the devil, he tucked his hands underneath his buttocks with his 